Genesis chapter 49. So, we have been talking about the promise of His coming. That's been the theme of our Advent message. And when we talk about the promise of His coming, remember we started back in Genesis at the beginning when God promised coming of the seed that would crush the head of the serpent. And God spoke of the enmity that existed between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we talked about the promised seed. Then we talked about that seed is not just one person. It is the person of Jesus. But it's also the people of Jesus, the corporate seed, and we are that people. We are, as Paul writes in Galatians, we are the seed of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ and heirs according to the promise. Last week, we talked about the promise of a new creation and we looked at the call of Abram before he was called Abraham Before he became the father of a multitude or the father of many nations, he was called by God and he was old and he was childless. And God promised that he would produce from Abraham a multitude. And God has absolutely done that. And how that call of Abraham was a picture, it was a foreshadowing of a new creation, a new humanity. And now in Christ, we are that new creation. We are that new humanity. Today, I want to talk to you about the promise of the king. God promised that there would be a king that would come. The promise of God to send the one who would crush the head of the serpent is the promise of the king to come. That king did come, and he will one day come again. Jesus is that king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He has come, and he will come again. Genesis 49, verse 10. Only one verse today that we're going to look at. And there is a lot in this verse. Genesis 49, 10. Jacob says to his son Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. That 49th chapter of Genesis begins, and it it pictures for us Jacob at the end of his days living in Egypt, and he calls his sons together. And Jacob said to his sons, gather together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have promised us a conqueror, a conquering king who would come and defeat your enemies. 
And Lord, we are not waiting for that king to come. We're not waiting for that conquering savior to come. He has already come and he has already conquered and he has already saved his people. Lord, we know he will come again one day, but he has come. And so we celebrate that coming. We remember that coming. And in remembering that, Lord, we remember the victory that was purchased for us by that king who chose to suffer on our behalf, to take the wrath of God upon himself, that we would be delivered of that wrath that rightfully belongs to us. Father, we thank you for your grace given to us in Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is the promised king. We thank you that we are his children, that we are his servants, his ambassadors, sent forth to proclaim and to expand that kingdom until he comes again one day. Father, we thank you for that privilege and that grace given to us. And we ask that we would be worthy of that calling and that we would walk out that calling in a manner that would bring glory and honor to your name. We ask this in the name that is above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen. Jacob spoke over his son Judah, proclaiming that the king, the Messiah, would rise out of Judah in the last days. I want to read this verse again. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from beneath or between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. That may sound... Part of that we can understand very clearly. Another part of that sounds kind of maybe strange to us. What does that mean until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people? Well, we're going to talk about this today and how this is God's promise given through Jacob, the patriarch, to his sons, and in particular the son Judah. Now you remember, if you remember your Bible stories. Remember, Judah was the one that wanted to murder Joseph. Remember, they threw Joseph in the well. Judah was the one that wanted to kill and be done with Joseph. Now, that wasn't God's plan. It was God's plan for Joseph to go to Egypt. And you know the story how Joseph's time in Egypt ended up saving uh, much of humanity, and, and in particular, and most importantly, saving Judah, the one who wanted to end his life, so that through Judah, that king would be able to come. Jo Jacob is speaking this to Judah and to Joseph and all the other sons in Egypt before he departs this life. And he says to his son Judah, that the scepter shall not depart. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is a symbol of kingship. A scepter is a staff 
It's a symbol of a king's authority. A scepter shall not depart from Judah means a king shall rise up and not depart from Judah and from his heritage. And the coming king would rise up somewhere in the lineage, in the heritage of Judah, there would be a king. Well, we know that happened. We know that that first king that rose up from Judah was King David. But King David was not the last king. And affirming what God spoke through Jacob, centuries before David was born and before David became king, God had already said that the scepter will not depart from Judah. So by the time David becomes king, it had already been said and settled and promised that the kingship, the rule that would come through Judah would be an everlasting rule. It would never depart. And David was not the first king. David was the second king. Saul from the tribe of Benjamin was the first king. And he failed. And God took the kingdom from him and gave it to David of the lineage of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Nor a lawgiver, or what this really pictures is a lawgiver's staff. Kings give law. Kings make law. The law would be given by the king. That staff of authority to make law would never depart from between the feet of this king. The king rising out of Judah would be a lawgiver. He would also be a law keeper. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In fact, not one jot or tittle would pass away from it, he said. Jots and tittles are those little marks, if you have ever seen Hebrew, little marks. We could say it like this, not one comma or period will pass Our lawgiver is also our law keeper. Christ, our king, keeps the law of God perfectly. This is why Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. The law is not abolished. The law can never be abolished. Now, I'm not talking about ceremonial law. I'm not talking about food laws. We're talking about the moral law of God. The law that shows us the very character of who God is and what God demands in terms of righteousness and holiness. And God gave the law to man not as a way that we could become righteous. Actually, God gave the law to man to reveal that there is no way for us to become righteous in ourselves. We are not capable of keeping the law in the way that God demands it. Always like the, uh, the, the metaphor of a plate glass window. 
if God demands an absolutely perfect plate glass window, that means that plate glass window can't be shattered. Well, that's obvious, right? Well, what if it just has a crack running diagonally across it? Not shattered, it still keeps the weather out. Is that, is that acceptable to God? If he demands a perfect plate glass window, no, that's not acceptable either. But what about that little bitty nick in the corner that we can't see because we put trim over it? Surely God would accept that because it looks perfect. And that flaw is hidden. We can't see it. For all practical purposes, for everyone looking at that plate glass window, it looks absolutely perfect. Because we can't see the hidden flaw. But guess who can? God can, and God knows it. No, when God demands perfection in the law, he demands perfection in the law, and man cannot provide that. Man cannot walk that out. But there was a man. There was a seed God promised would come. There was a king God promised would come. There was a savior God promised would come who would take on human flesh and who would walk out that law perfectly. And that king and that savior is our lawgiver, but he is also our law keeper. The law will never pass away. It is eternally fulfilled, kept in Jesus Christ. So our lawgiver, who is our law keeper, our king keeps the law of God perfectly. And we trust in him to do perfectly all that the law demands. All that we cannot do ourselves. And by faith we see all that he does in our stead that we cannot do on our own. And because of that grace and because of his love poured out to us in Jesus Christ, not only do we see what he does in our stead in keeping the law, we saw what he did in our stead by taking upon himself the fullness of God's wrath so that we would be delivered from that. In this imagery presented here, we have a scepter, a king's staff. We have a lawgiver with his staff. And both of these are pointing us to the promise of the coming king. Then the verse goes on and gives another picture of the coming king and Messiah. And it says, until Shiloh come. Well, let's pause for just a moment there and talk about what does this actually mean. The word Shiloh in Hebrew means literally he whose it is. He whose, possessive, he whose it is. Well, whose staff is that? Whose scepter is that? Shiloh. He whose it is. Or that which belongs to him. That scepter which belongs to him, that staff of the lawgiver which belongs to him, shall never depart. It comes from a root word that means tranquil or peaceful, successful and prosperous. The Jews 
almost universally in the writing of the rabbis. This is the cornerstone verse for them in terms of the promise of a coming Messiah. The Jews see this verse foretelling the coming of the Messiah. They are still looking for their Messiah. We know that He has come. His name is Jesus. Shiloh was also the place where the ark was kept during the time of the judges of Israel. Before it was eventually moved to Jerusalem, when Solomon built the temple, the, the, the ark was moved into the temple. David eventually moved it to Jerusalem. But before it was moved to Jerusalem, it resided in Shiloh. When Jacob speaks this over his son Judah, Shiloh was not a place of any significance. It obviously existed in the geography of the Middle East, but it was not until centuries later that Shiloh would become that place where the ark would rest. But even the ark resting in Shiloh was significant in foreshadowing because what was the ark of the covenant? The ark is where the presence of God dwelt. The ark spoke of God's presence. The ark is what Israel carried into battle, symbolizing that God went with them into battle. The reference here in Genesis is long before Shiloh was a place of any significance. Though the presence of the ark in Shiloh signifies the presence of God, their king, it seems to be pointing us to something or someone even greater than the ark of the covenant. This verse is pointing us to Jesus Christ, the King of kings, born of a virgin, laid in a manger, that baby child who is the Messiah King that has come, and that Messiah King who will again come one day. This is what we are celebrating at Advent. This is what we celebrate each week on the Lord's Day. This is what we are to celebrate and rejoice in every day. Jesus has come. The Messiah, the King, has come and established His rule and His reign. And now we are advancing that rule and that reign until it fills the earth as the waters cover the sea, just as the prophet wrote. Habakkuk 2.14 for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water cover the sea. Listen to that again, church. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This was centuries before the birth of Jesus. We are centuries on the other side of the birth of Jesus. 20 centuries thereabouts. Or we could say 21 centuries on the other side of Jesus actually now. And this word of the prophet is still true. And I submit to you that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is far greater today than it was when the prophet penned those words. The knowledge of the glory of God is far greater today than it was when that baby was laying in the manger. 
And it is far greater today than it was when that risen Savior ascended to heaven. We are working in obedience to God to see the knowledge of the glory of God fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is what Jesus commanded us to do when he commanded us to go therefore in all of his authority in his name and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. Church, this is how the knowledge of the glory of God is going to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. This is why I liken the Great Commission to the mandate given to Adam and Eve in in the garden, to go forth and be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth with the image of God. And this is what we do through the Great Commission. We go forth, we make disciples, and we fill the earth with the image of God. And therefore, the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God will be seen and will be known in all the earth as the waters cover the sea. In Genesis 49.10, we see a glimpse of what would happen in the last days. I think it's interesting that Jacob says, come and let me tell you boys what will happen in the last days. What will come of you in the last days. And you realize that by the time David became king, Judah was long gone. But it's interesting that when Peter and those disciples come out of the upper room at Pentecost, And Peter preaches his famous sermon. And 3,000 men are saved that day. Or we could say it like this. 3,000 households were saved that day. Or thereabout. So in other words, salvation came to more than just 3,000 men, I believe. Just like when Jesus fed the 5,000, he didn't just feed 5,000 people. He fed 5,000 households. Do we not think there were women and children out there? I believe Jesus fed more than 5,000 people. I believe as a result of Peter's sermon that day, there were more than 3,000 people eventually added to the kingdom of God because the salvation that came to those men who were the heads of their households who had gathered it for Pentecost from all over the world would go back to their families in other parts of the world that they came from and spread this gospel, and salvation would begin to fill the earth. Or we could say it like this, the knowledge of the glory of God through Jesus Christ would begin to fill the earth. And we are now, 21 centuries later, on the other side of that event, and the knowledge of the glory of God is still filling the earth. And the amazing thing, the the thing that we should be most excited about is that we now are part of that because this is our time of visitation on the earth. This is when we get to spread that word, make disciples, and see through our own lives and in our own lifetime the knowledge of the glory of God filling the earth. That should excite us as believers, as Christians. That God loved us enough, graced us enough to put us on this earth to be a part of that glorious plan of salvation. 
that we are a part of the story that he is writing, the glorious story that he is writing. So we see this glimpse of what would happen in the last days. Peter said, we're living. This is what the prophet Joel said in the last days. So the way I take that, when Peter said that 21 centuries ago, I'm just going to believe that we're living in the last days. Or maybe the last days ended and we're living in something else right now. Maybe we're living in a new creation. Not that sin's not here, but you do realize, that's what we talked about when we said the promise of a new creation. Something has happened. There's some reason the Bible says you are, therefore, in Christ, a new creation. Something has happened. Our enemies have been defeated. The devil has been disarmed. Powers and principalities are watching us the scripture says, and we give witness to them of what? Of the manifold wisdom of God. And where is that wisdom found? It's found in Jesus Christ. Something really happened when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Something really ended there. An age, a world ended there. Do you realize that for 21 centuries there has been no sacrifice in a temple? Do you know the Jews cannot keep the law as God commanded because they don't have a temple? Well, who took that temple away? Well, God did. Because Jesus is now the temple. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus has finished the work. Now, we offer ourselves up not as dead sacrifices. We don't offer animals. We offer ourselves up as living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. That is our reasonable service, our reasonable act of worship. Now in Jesus Christ, now that we have become new creations, now that all things are of God. It's a glorious picture. We're still fighting the battle. The war is won. The victory is not in question, but we are still fighting a spiritual battle. And, and I say that because there are still people being born into this world and there are still people being born again out of this world. You know what I mean when I say out of this world? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't live of this world. We were born out of this world when we were born again of the Spirit. In other words, we're not of this world any longer. We're here. But we are now of the Spirit. We are now of Christ. We are born from above, not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. And it is that people of God, it is that corporate seed that is advancing the kingdom, that is causing the knowledge of the glory of God to be seen and known even as the waters cover the sea. Since the birth of the Messiah, it's no longer a glimpse Jesus, the Son of God, came and revealed Himself in human flesh, in His life and death, and in glory and power in His resurrection. Now by faith we see Him in the fullness of His glory, ruling and reigning over all in heaven and earth. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. 
For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. We do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. All things are put under, but we don't see it. Because we don't see it, does it mean it's not put under? No, it says, don't look at what you don't see. Look at what you can see. You can see Jesus. We don't look at all things under him. We don't see all things under him. There is still sin. There is still death. There is still much that appears to not be under him. But the scripture is very clear here in Hebrews also in Ephesians chapter 2, that he rules and reigns, he sits above all things, and under our feet, the church, he has placed all things. The fact that we can't see that, or we can't discern that, because we're, we're used to being distracted by all of the negative things that seem to say to us that all things aren't under him, the scripture teaches us that all things indeed are under him. And so what do we look to? We look to Jesus. That's who we look to. The author and the finisher of our faith. We don't yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. They're under him. We just don't see it, but we do see Jesus. We do not have to see all things under him yet, but we do see Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, the risen Lord, by faith, we then know that all things have been put under him. By seeing Jesus, by faith, I can face death, I can see death, I can know death, and I can also know that death has no power over me. I don't deny that death is, is real. I say, death is nothing to fear. Because my king, my savior, has already conquered death. Well, yeah, but you're going to die one day. So then death's not under him. No, death is under him. It just has not been fully put away yet. One day, death will be no more. But he conquered death, and in him, you and I, and all who are in him, conquer death. Don't look at death, look at Jesus. See Jesus, the risen Lord. See him by faith and know that all things are under his feet. From Judah, a king with his scepter would rise and not depart. A lawgiver with his staff would rise and not depart until Shiloh comes, until the one, until he whose it is comes. This is speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the king, the lawgiver, and the Lord of all, who will draw all men to himself. Kings and lawgivers, judge. Listen to the words of Jesus just before he goes to the cross. It's recorded for us in John 12, 31 and 32. Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This is the king. This is the lawgiver pronouncing his judgment over a sinful world and over the ruler of that world. 
This is the one who has promised to gather the people in obedience to him. Listen to the last part of Genesis 49, verse 10. Until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Not only the people of Israel, but all the peoples of the world. This, in fact, is pointing us to the true Israel, the true descendants of Abraham, not in replacement of Israel, but in revelation of the true Israel, who belongs to Christ and who is Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise by faith. This obedient people, drawn to him by irresistible grace, are people of all tongues, all tribes, all nations, both Jew and Gentile. For in Christ there is no longer any distinction, for he has created in himself from the two one new man. Jesus has come, he has conquered, and he is coming again one day as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In the book of Numbers, there is another prophecy of the promised coming king. And this prophecy was not given by a descendant of Abraham like Jacob was. Jacob was uh, not just a descendant. He was the grandson of Abraham. But this prophecy was given by a Gentile soothsayer, a diviner, or what we might call a wizard, if you will. His name was Balaam. This is an amazing prophecy given by what most would call a pagan. Balaam was evidently a very... We don't get this from just reading sometimes. We read this account in Numbers. This is the guy who was riding the donkey and the donkey spoke to him. And, and the king of Moab was wanting... He, he saw Israel coming and he wanted to get rid of Israel. And he knew that Israel was too strong for him. So he calls Balaam. And we think, you know, it's kind of like we pick up the phone, hey, Balaam, can you come over here real quick? Balaam lived about 420 miles from where the king of Moab lived. So for the king of Moab to get Balaam to come to him, it was about a three-week journey at a minimum to send his guys one way and then convince Balaam to come and then a three-week journey get Balaam over there to actually curse Israel. And Balaam was evidently a very well-known diviner or soothsayer. His claim to fame was that he could curse people and the curses worked. Now what's interesting is that Balaam, Balaam was obviously somehow familiar with the God of Israel. And we're not studying about Balaam today, but we just, uh, we just finished reading Numbers. It was, um, it was really a great book. I would encourage you to go read this. But the short of it is, finally Balaam agrees to come. So he makes the long journey back to where the king of Moab is. And Balaam is telling these guys all along, I can't do anything except what, what Elohim tells me to say. I can't do anything except what God tells me to say. And God kept having Balaam pronounce blessing over Israel instead of curses. And as you can imagine, the king of Moab got really upset. But what I want to hone in on here is one particular thing that Balaam said 
as he prophesied, as he spoke the words, and this is the language the Bible used, that God put a word in Balaam's mouth. It also says that God came to Balaam. This is the guy riding the donkey on his way to the king of Moab, this famous diviner who supposedly has uh, the ability to tap into the unseen and the supernatural realm. This famous, world-famous diviner that the king of Moab went three weeks to get is so in tune that he can't even see the angel of the Lord before him. But guess what can? His dumb donkey. Men rode female donkeys, and they were considered, literally, they were considered dumb. So you literally, you have a dumb donkey that's able to see the angel of the Lord. And you've got this world-famous soothsayer that the king of Moab is going to pay a king's ransom to, to to come curse, and he can't even see the angel that's before him until finally the donkey talks to him. Whether the donkey spoke Hebrew or whether whatever Aramaic or whether the, the, he heard the braying in Aramaic, we don't know. But Balaam heard the donkey, and then his eyes were opened to see the angel of the Lord. It's kind of a comical thing if you think about it. The scepter here, here's what it says. Balaam says this when he gets there and he's, he's trying to curse Israel, but God won't let him and he keeps speaking blessing. And in verse 17 of Numbers 24, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow or crush the head of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. That word there for tumult is actually the word Seth. Yes, the son of Adam. And destroy all the sons of Seth. Jeremiah quotes says quotes this in a very similar fashion, and he uses and destroy all the sons of tumult. The scepter here is the symbol of kingship. It's also a picture of ruling military power. Kings had long scepters they used, and they had a short scepter that was symbolic of their military power. And this is an attempt to destroy Israel militarily, and God's not having it. And the scepter here speaks of their power to rule and to conquer. And this king, Balaam is foreseeing, shall rise out of Jacob, out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab. This king will rule the earth, having crushed the head and battered the brow, not only of Moab, but of all the nations and all the enemies of God. This king is Jesus. He has come, he has conquered, and he is ruling right now. The promise of the king is fulfilled. Jesus is come, and he is coming again. Again, the words of the prophecy given to Jacob by Judah... I mean, given by to Jacob, uh, given by Jacob to Judah. The word of the Lord, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him 
shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh has come. He whose it is has come. The kingdom in all the world, all of creation are his. Jesus has come for that which belongs to him. The nations belong to him. All the nations belong to him. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He came in peace to make peace. He came as a babe. He came to live and to die for our sins, the sins of his people, that his people would have peace with God so that his people would be reconciled to God. He came to make peace between God and between man that the world might be reconciled to him in God. That the world might be reconciled to God in him, I mean. And we read where the whole creation is waiting for that reconciliation to be fully manifest when the sons of God are made manifest. God so loved the cosmos, he loves all of his creation. And all of his creation is under sin right now, but there's coming a day when all of his creation will be delivered from the burden of sin. and Death will be no more. To Jesus shall be the obedience of the people, of the nation, to the glory of God. Paul's words from Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, speaking of Christ, therefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Shiloh has come. Jesus has come. The obedience of the nations is coming. Merry Christmas. What a gift. What a king we serve. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Think about that king. Think about the fact that you. Are not just subjects in his kingdom. But the Bible says you rule and you reign with him. That you are in Christ a royal priesthood. You are his royal ambassadors sent out into this world to make known the message of the king. Not to suggest that people receive it, but to command that they receive it. That's what the king has commanded us to do. Not just share his message, but to command his message. And when the world rejects that message, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the king who sent you with that message. It is that king we celebrate. It is that king we remember and declare his body and his blood when we come to this table. As you trust in Jesus, our king, our lawgiver, our law keeper, our savior, as you trust in him, come to this table. Welcome to Jesus. And as we celebrate Advent, I will remind you of the words of the Apostle Paul, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
till He come. We look at His coming past. We look to His coming future. And in the meantime, we work to build His kingdom and see His name known and glorified throughout all the earth. In the hustle and bustle of Christmas, do not forget that Shiloh has come. Jesus the King did come. And He is coming again. He did come for what was His. Not just His rule, but for His people who belong to Him. The peoples are not all obedient to Him yet. So He has charged us to go in His name, in His authority, and make disciples of the nations till the nations submit to their King and until He comes again. This is our charge from the Lord. This is our privilege as His people. 